So the theme that we are seeing in, in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And the context, if you remember, is that the author is writing to believers who are of Hebrew origin, hence the name to the Hebrews. And these Jewish believers are beginning to be persecuted pretty severely uh, by uh, their Jewish brethren who weren't believers in Jesus. So, so you have a situation where these people who uh, had been awaiting their Messiah, the bulk of the nation of Israel, rejected Jesus as their Messiah, but there was this remnant that did see Jesus as the Messiah, and as that remnant continues to walk with Him and to follow His ways, what happens is these Jews who didn't believe get increasingly more hostile to those who did. And, and you can understand if, if you're in a situation, I don't know if anybody here has experienced intense persecution where maybe your family is threatening to push you away if you follow Jesus or your boss is saying you need to tone it down or you're going to lose that promotion or maybe even you've known of people who have been physically harmed because of their faith. But if you've been in a situation that, like that or know a situation like that, you know that it's not just people walking around going, that's okay, I know Jesus, everything's going to be fine. But there's a huge temptation to go, is this all worth it? Is this really true? Is Jesus who we really think He is? And so the author of Hebrews is writing this letter that's meant to show them, look, all the things you're tempted to go back to as Jewish believers, going back to the old sacrificial system, going back under the old priesthood, going back away from Jesus, all those things you think that you're going to find peace in, help in, going back to some religious system, Jesus is better than all those things. And so we've seen already that, that Jesus is uh, a better message, that when we talk about who Jesus is, that is the message. He is the substance and the conclusion of all Scripture. And we've talked about that Jesus is a better messenger, we talked about the fact that better than even the Old Testament prophets was Jesus who brought forth the Scriptures, because Jesus isn't just a man who was a prophet. He is the prophet, but He's more than that. He is God the Son. We saw a couple weeks back that Jesus is a better human. He brings a better humanity, we should say, and so that we understand what it means to be human, what it means to be the best that God intends us to be by seeing who Jesus was as a man. And so now, knowing that we've, he's covered that, the author wants to now talk about this guy, Moses. Now, why bring up Moses now? Well, first and foremost, because, of course, Moses was one who among the Jews was seen as higher than anybody else. They revered Abraham, of course, uh, whom their nation was birthed from. But even more than that, they revered Moses. They saw Moses as the person who had actually built their faith. The Jews saw Moses that way. There are some Jews who actually in the first century saw that Moses had more value or power, should be held in a higher esteem than angels, that they had more power than them. And so what the author wants to do is, as he's continuing to, to do through Hebrews, is show, look, Moses is great, but Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. And there's really just kind of two things, that, the main points that he makes, but these two main points are really applicable to us today. And, and they're right there in your notes if you have some notes on your uh, on your seat, they're right there. They're pretty basic that, you know, Moses served the house, but Jesus built the house. That's one point the author's going to make. And then he's going to talk about how the Moses followers, they tested God, but Jesus' followers are those who trust God. And we'll talk about what that means. Now, just to begin with, I, I don't know if anybody here has a Jewish background where you are a Messianic believer, you were of, um, 
a Jew by birth and you were part of the Jewish culture religiously and then God called you uh, to put your faith in Jesus as Messiah. If you are that, please come and talk to us because we'd love to get some insight from you. But that most of you are Gentiles. Most of you are not Jews. And so for you, you're kind of going, okay, Jesus is better than Moses. That's pretty, yeah, okay, I get it. That's no problem with me. I think Moses was okay, but Jesus, of course, is better than Moses. And so you might think, okay, what's this got to do with me? What's well, got everything to do with us? Because the reality is, for us to follow Jesus in this life is to, to face trouble, is to be in the margins, to be towards the outside. And the pressure we feel in this culture to be towards the outside, we have the same temptation that these Hebrew Christians had, which is to trade in a real relationship with Jesus for just a form of religion. We have the same temptations. And so what we're going to learn is he's, the author is wanting to encourage these Hebrew Christians that Jesus is better than Moses. We're going to learn that Jesus is better than any kind of religious system we want to make up, no matter how Christian we think it is. So let's get into it. Verse 1. The author starts off by saying, Therefore, holy brethren. And this is hugely important right off the bat because remember, he just talked about in chapter 2 how Jesus brings a better humanity. And part of that is that we recognize what brotherhood is because of who Jesus is. We know what it means to be the brotherhood of man because of Jesus. In fact, it says in, in Hebrews 2.11, I believe it is, that, that the author says that, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, which is an amazing thing to think about, that he would see us as the, in the, put us in this kind of relationship where we can know him as a brother. And so he's, he's carrying on with that idea, and he's saying, therefore, holy brethren, those who are set apart by Jesus and for Jesus, you are partakers of the heavenly calling. That is, you're those who have heard the call to come and follow Jesus, and you've responded in the positive. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. And this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Now, don't get confused. This doesn't mean that Jesus was one of the 12 or something like that. The word apostle simply means sent out one. It's one who's sent out. It's like the idea of an ambassador. And so when he's talking about that Jesus is the apostle, he's talking about he is the sent out one. Now, don't forget, the Jews thought Moses was a sent out one. They saw him as one who was sent by God as an ambassador. And so the author is saying, I want you to consider him. The word consider isn't just like think about for a second. It's this idea of I want you to focus on him. Focus on Jesus. He says, who was, it says in verse 2, faithful to him who appointed him, that is faithful to God the Father who appointed him. Notice, as Moses also was faithful in his house. So what the author's wanting to see is, look, he's not saying Moses was a bad one. You know, we don't want to follow Moses. He's a dork. You know, who cares about Moses? No, it's basically Moses is great, but Jesus is better. They were both faithful in what God called them to do. They just had completely different things to do. And, you know, Jesus kind of picks up on this theme in John's gospel. should be on the screen. John chapter 5, listen. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, speaking to Jews, speaking to religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He says, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Later on in the same context, he says, for if you believed Moses, who wrote, of course, the first, first five books of the Bible, or at least assembled them, 
He says, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus wasn't saying, Moses, he's bogus. He was saying, Moses was right. And guess who he talked about? Me. He pointed to me. In fact, he, he kind of carries on this theme in verse 3. He's for, for this one, speaking of Jesus, the author says, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch, notice, he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, and he who built all things is God. Here's another reference in the book of Hebrews to Jesus being God, by the way. But also, he's a real simple point. You know, if you see a beautifully designed and built home, when you look at that, you might marvel about the home, but if you find out that the person who lives there is the person who designed it and built it, you're going to be more impressed with them than the home itself. That's just how it works, isn't it? You, you, you see someone who's the designer of the building, and you go, wow, that's amazing. And this is the point the author's trying to make. Yes, Moses was a faithful servant. In fact, verse 5 says that clearly, right? Moses indeed was a faithful in God's house as a servant. So Moses was faithful as a servant, but the point is, he wasn't the one who built the house. That's Jesus who did that. Now, interesting, too, because in verse 5, what it says is that Moses was indeed faithful in all his house as a servant. The word for servant there is a word that's used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a word that refers to the most menial uh, the most menial servant or, or, or position you could take in a household as a servant, okay? And what's interesting about this is it's, it's probably a quote from the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, Numbers chapter 12. It's probably a quote from there about Moses being a servant, and the Greek version uses that word as well in the Old Testament. And it's this idea that uh, Moses, when he came, he didn't just come and, and, and to serve and to help but he came as a real humble person. The Scripture says of Moses that he was the humblest man that ever lived, up to that time, obviously. But what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says of Jesus, listen, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus, being God, did not consider it robbery to consider himself equal with God, he laid aside the free exercise of his deity and he clothed himself as a man. He doesn't just live as a man, but he lives humbly as a man, obedient to the point of death, not just any death, but the death on the cross. He took the lowest form of a servant. What did Jesus do the night before he was crucified? He literally took the lowest form of a servant by washing the disciples' feet. This is why it says in verse 5, notice, listen, Moses was a servant for what? For a testimony of things which would be spoken afterwards. In other words, to point forwards. To whom? To Jesus. Now, verse 6, drop down there. It says, but Christ, listen, as a son over his own house. And notice what he, how, how it describes the house of Christ, whose house we are. See, here's the thing. When we talk about Moses, as great as Moses was to give the Ten Commandments, to, to receive from God, the, the design for the tabernacle, which would point to how God wants to have, uh, be in the presence of his people, wants to be in communion with his people. Moses received all that. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Moses led the people into the promised land, or at least to the edge of the promised land. 
He did all that. That's great, wonderful. But you know what? All that stuff is simply pointing to Christ and what he would do. You could say this. Moses didn't come up with the plan. Moses receives the plan. But Jesus clarifies the plan. Jesus is the plan. And Jesus fulfills the plan. Moses, in a sense, gets the blueprints from God. Jesus fulfills the blueprints. He builds the house. Who's the house? Us, believers, both Jew and Gentile, believers in Jesus. He builds the house. This is really a similar thing that the Apostle Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. Paul writes, I planted, Apollo, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Notice what he says. You are God's field. Notice, you are God's building. Peter talks about that we're being built up as a spiritual house, as living stones. He's building us. Now, Now think about this what it means to these Jewish believers, okay? They're thinking, you know what? We're getting persecuted. We don't, want to, we're not, we don't want to lose our faith in God, but maybe if we just go under the old system and just kind of start following Moses and stuff, if maybe that'll be good enough. You know what it's like? It's like moving out of your house and putting the blueprints over your head for shelter. That's exactly what it's like. It's not going to do, give you much covering, is it? As soon as the rain comes, it's all going to dissolve. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But this is exactly what we do. We do the same thing as Gentiles. We, we, here we are, we have all the riches, all every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. We can know the Father, we can walk with the Father, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can do, we, we can do all the things that God's called us to do by Him who strengthens us, but instead we think, well, you know, maybe we'll just do a few little religious deeds instead. And it brings absolutely zero change has no effect to our life. But Paul also says in Philippians, he says, being confident of this thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. The author says in verse 6 that we're his house if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing firm to the end. In other words, one of the identifying characteristics of those who are Jesus followers, and we'll talk about this more in a, in a bit, is that they continue to follow Jesus. They, they, they follow him to the end. That's one of our characteristics. We continue to follow them to the end. That's the way it works. And he's saying this is the case. In fact, it's, and it's not just kind of horrible hardship. He's saying, listen, you're part of the house. So he's saying, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing. Know the assurance and the hope and the rejoicing that you had in the beginning. Jesus hasn't changed. Keep holding on to him. Don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to some religious substitute. Stay with him who built you, who is building you up, and will finish that work until the end. That's the first point. So, second point, verse 7. The author then goes in to begin to quote Psalm chapter 95, and he's quoting from the second part of verse 7 down to the end of the psalm, verse 11, okay? You don't have to turn there because it's right here in your text, but that's what he's doing. And here's what he says. Notice verse 7. He says, Therefore, 
As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, see, see how many guys are Bible students. How long were the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness on the way to the promised land? How long? Anybody know? You're not very confident. How many years? 40 years. That's right, 40 years. Okay, here's a, maybe a trickier one. Anybody know how long that path should have taken? If they would have followed the directions that God gave them, how long would it have taken them from Egypt to Canaan? Anybody know? Shout it out. 40 days. Could have been 40 days, exactly. If they went straight, 40 days. If they went straight, 40 days. But if they followed the, the, the path that he wanted, a little bit longer, just about a year. So a one-year trip that was meant to get Egypt out of them, not just them out of Egypt. The one-year trip took 40 years. The psalm is written about using that as an illustration. Psalm 95 uses it as an illustration. And the author of Hebrews is basically unpacking this. He's expositing this text for us. In fact, he's going to use this text over and over again throughout the next several chapters. Now here's what's interesting. We're talking about this point. The point I'm wanting to make is that Moses' followers, these that follow Moses in this wilderness that Psalm 95 is talking about, they tested God. What does it mean to test God? What do we mean by that, that they tested God? Well, I want you to notice right off the bat that the author says, notice, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not just said, says. So the author of Hebrews does this a lot, and we've talked about this before, and it's, it's important to recognize again. The author of Hebrews treats the Old Testament Scripture as the very words of God, that God breathed out these words, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that God said this, but also, listen, he treats the Word of God as something that's living and active, which we'll see in chapter 4, that God says still what he wants to be said. In other words, it's not just some sort of a dead book or an historical narrative or something that we need to kind of learn some lessons from. This book is spiritual. And when God's, because God spoke it into existence through human offers and human authors and uh, uh, various circumstances, still it was God who inspired that book, who made sure the words He wanted written were written, and that makes this book living and active. And so when the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says, He's going, to quote the, he's going to quote the Scripture expecting, listen, for God's Spirit to speak. That's what he's doing. Now, this is important. It's important. It's kind of a side note, but it's a really important side note because the reality is when we come to church and we sit under God's Word, we hear teaching, we should be those who come expecting God's Spirit to speak, no matter who's up here doing it. If they're saying what God's Word says, we should expect to hear from God. Now, what's interesting about this is in talking about what does it mean to test God, we see from these first two verses that partly what it means is it means to fail to respond when the Spirit speaks. This is what it means to test God. In fact, it's interesting because when we talk about test, this, this idea or even this word rebellion in verse 8 it's, it's translated in the King James, the old King James, provocation. It's this idea of provoking somebody. It's like you're wearing thin on their patience, you know? It's like I remember when my kids were small and we'd go on some road trip somewhere. Are we almost there? 
Are we there? Are we there? Are we there? Are we there? You know, it starts wearing on you after a while. And you just think, okay, I'm, you know, we're almost there, and you're just kind of losing the patience. It has that idea. Now, God is infinitely more patient than we are, but still, it's this idea that they were provoking God toward anger by being disobedient. And one of the ways that they did this, listen, was to fail to respond when the Spirit was speaking. This is important. Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus, appears to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. You guys remember that? Book of Revelation. And he tells John to write down these seven letters to seven distinct churches in Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Turkey. And as he kind of dictates these letters to John, and John writes these letters, each one's addressed to a different church, each one, each one con, uh, commends the churches for different things, uh, challenges the churches for different things, depending on the church. But every single of the seven letters ends with these words. Listen, it ends with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single one. Interesting, Jesus didn't say, He who has an ear, let him hear what Jesus says to the churches, what the Spirit says to the churches. He expects, listen, he expects that when that letter is read to that church, that the Spirit is going to speak, and those people are meant to respond. Guys, this is what God calls us to. God calls us to be the kind of people that hear his word and respond, and we are testing, we're provoking him when we refuse to listen to what he says. Did we learn this in James, right? If we hear the word but we don't do it, what are we doing? We're deceiving whom? Ourselves. Now, he goes on to say, quoting Psalm 95 in verse 9. He says, Where your father, in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation, said they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Now, here's what's interesting. When he talks about that they tested and tried him uh, and saw my works 40 years, don't forget the generation that came out of Egypt. You can read this in the book of Exodus. Generation that comes out of Egypt, what happens? They had been slaves for 400 years. And towards the end of those 400 years, they're saying, God, if you're still there, if you are still our God, deliver us. Come on, you've seen Prince of Egypt. You know the story. Deliver us, they say, right? They cry out to God for deliverance. Does God hear an answer? Absolutely. He sends Moses. And he sends Moses not just to kind of say, hey, I'll make a deal with Pharaoh and we'll sneak you out when nobody's watching. God does miracle after miracle after miracle because Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and delivers them with his mighty hand. And then after he delivers them out of Egypt and the Egyptian soldiers chase after him, what happens? They're cornered against the Red Sea. What does God do? parts the Red Sea through Moses. They go across on dry land and then floods it back and destroys the Egyptian army. Another miracle. And then all throughout the 40 years, even though they were a stubborn, stiff-necked people, over and over again, God would supernaturally provide for this people so that after 40 years, listen, after 40 years, they could say their sandals never wore out and they never went hungry. And after all that, they still refused to believe. In fact, 
This is what they would do. This is how they tested God. They ignored this clear evidence of God's work in their life and they demanded more evidence. Yeah, okay, those are good miracles, but what have you done for me lately, God? Come on. We, we want this. No, 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 we want that. They complained over and over again. And even when they would complain and God would chasten them, God would still have mercy and then again show them His power supernaturally. Over and over again. Just like the Pharisees did with Jesus. Remember in uh, Matthew chapter 12, listen to this. So some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, they're talking to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now don't forget, Jesus already done loads of signs, okay? Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it uh, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three, nights, uh, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Same with them. They saw Jesus do miracles. These Pharisees, they saw Jesus heal. Right in front of them, not just hear the rumors, they saw it. He would do it in the synagogues in front of them on purpose. They saw him uh, heal. They, saw, they, they knew of him rising from the dead. They saw him rising from, rise people from the dead. They, they, they knew of him multiplying bread. They knew of him having power over creation and, and, and ceasing the waves to, 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 uh, to go. They heard him forgive people's sins. It made them furious because they saw that as blasphemy. And yet they said, yeah, okay, fine, show us another sign. That's testing God. But also, look what happens. Drop down to verse 16. After, again, the author, after quoting the first section of that Psalm 95, here's what he says. For who having rebelled... For who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not those who came all out of Egypt by Moses? He's identifying who are these people? Who are these who, who refused to believe? In fact, he says, notice in verse 18, he says, uh, And to whom did he swear that they, could not, they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? That phrase, did not obey, is one word in the Greek language. It means they refused to believe. It's similar to the word that's used there in verse 19 for unbelief. It's a refusal to believe. It's not just like, well, I'm not sure yet. I haven't seen all the evidence. I don't know much about Jesus yet. It's not that. If you're in that place, we want you to ask the questions. Don't be ashamed that you don't understand yet. Ask the questions. It's talking about the kind of people who know truth, know evidence, know what's true, and they go, I don't care. I refuse to believe. Ever met someone like that? You ever shared with somebody over and over again and every question, question they ask, you find them the answer and they go, yeah, okay, but what about, and over and over again and finally get to a place where they say, look, I don't care what evidence you give me, I'm not going to believe. Ever met someone like that? That's what this is talking about. And it's talking about people, listen, who have tested God, people who have seen God do radical things to redeem them and they still say, eh, that's testing God. And it's a serious thing. If I was to introduce myself to you and say, oh, hi, for the first time, hi, I'm John, what's your name? And you say, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Bob. And I said, liar. No, no, really, it's my name, Bob. You know Bob. You don't think of Bob. Where do you live, Bob? <laughs> oh, I, I live in Norwich. Liar. 
You don't live in Norwich. I hear that accent. That's Suffolk. You're from Suffolk. So Bob from Norwich, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a contractor. Liar. Look at those weenie hands. You can't pick up anything. You'd never build anything in your life. You think that person would be offended? Especially if they said, here's my wallet with my address. There's my truck with all the tools. And this person here, I built their house. They can tell you I've built their house. They would be very offended. How much more our creator God who becomes a man and says, here I am. Here's what I've done for you. How much more would he be, is he offended when we go, liar. But that's what we do. That's testing God. Now, I know this sounds harsh, but it's important to recognize that what the author is trying to do is get them to see, listen, it's difficult it is for you to be under this persecution. You need to understand it doesn't matter. It is hard, it is difficult. God does care. God will avenge. But here's the reality. What has God said about Himself? How has God showed Himself to you? How are you responding to Him? Are you refusing to trust Him? Because to do so is to test the Lord, is to provoke His wrath. Now, that's what it means to test God. What does it mean to trust Him? Seriously, what does it mean to trust God? What does He, the author of Hebrews, what's He going to tell us that might help us to know what does it mean to trust God? Well, go back to verse 12. He says, notice, he's talking to people, treating them like brethren. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from, notice, the living God. There's a clue there for us. What does it mean to trust God? It means, listen, to be drawing near to God Himself, the living God. See, what the Hebrews, what these Hebrews were, were tempted to do was to sort of, okay, we'll ignore God or, or who God has revealed Himself in Christ and we'll just do enough religious stuff to make our conscience feel better and to keep ourselves from being persecuted. Now, I don't want to sound harsh, but I'll tell you, that seems to be the way of a lot of churches nowadays. Let's, let's preach a message that's not going to offend anybody. Let's, let's, let's just pick Bible verses that make everybody feel good. Let's just do that because, you know, we don't want to have people angry at us and not want to come anymore that's not going to be good. Instead of saying what God says about Himself and letting God Himself be the draw, that people want to know Him. See, here, here's, the, here's the reality. God calls us into relationship. The whole reason God clothed Himself in the human flesh was so that you could know Him intimately. So you could be adopted as His child you could be engaged as his bride. You could be his co-laborer in ministry. You could enjoy him forever. That's the whole reason he became a man. How silly is it of us if we don't draw near? This is what saving faith is. God says, come to me. Think about it, guys. Think about it. We tend to look at biblical faith as something different. We, we think of faith nowadays and we say, well, faith is just, I just know that God's real. I just feel it. I just had this great experience with God, and I just know that He's real. Hey, I've had some amazing experiences with God. I'm not knocking any of that. 
But faith isn't just some feeling. Oh, no, no, faith is a decision. I said the sinner's prayer when I was nine years old. Faith is a decision. I made that decision. I said that prayer. I was baptized. But faith isn't a decision. When you look at Jesus' ministry, you never see Jesus saying, come to me. Can you feel it? Can you feel what God's doing? Come on. Can you feel it? Come on, people. Can you feel it? You never see Jesus doing that. You also never see Jesus saying, okay, I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, you know, I mean, how does this work? Repeat this prayer, and then now you're my follower. See you later. You don't see Jesus doing that either. What do you see Jesus doing? He says to individuals, come follow me. Come walk with me. Come know me. Come be with me. I don't just call you servants, I call you friends, he says. Come be with me. He calls us into a real relationship with the real God. That's what he calls us to. Saving faith, biblical faith is this. It says, I'm going to draw near to God himself. Why? Because I have access to this God through Jesus Christ. That's what he does. That's saving faith. That's what it means to trust God. God, I believe you are real. And as we're going to read in, in, in Hebrews 11, you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. I want to seek you. I want to know you, God. That's trusting God. Not just having some devotional time. It's wanting to know God. Interesting. It, it should be on the screen. The first part of Psalm 95. We just read the second part, right? From verse, uh, the second part of Psalm 95 is verses 7 to 11 here. Well, the first part of Psalm 95 should be on the screen. Here's what it says. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great, the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are, are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry, the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. I hear personal intimacy there. I hear relationship there. It's not about being religious. Trusting God means drawing near to himself. Look at verse 13 also, quickly. I'm almost done. He says, but instead of having that evil heart of unbelief, he says, but exhort one another daily what is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now notice he's kind of unpacking just this word today. He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit spoke to these people in the Psalms. The Holy Spirit's speaking, saying today, today, respond now. Don't wait to end the message till they say, okay, now time to respond. Respond to God now. Turn back to God now. Today's the day. Now, interesting, though, what he says here. He talks about here, he describes what he calls an evil heart of unbelief. It's that word, that refusal to believe. I don't want to trust God. He says that's evil. But also, notice what he says. He says we need to exhort one another daily. In other words, listen, he says we need to do this because, notice what he says, verse 13, 
lest any of us be hardened through, what does he say? The deceitfulness of sin. What's the deceitfulness of sin? What does that mean? He's talking about the, the, the sin of lying? No. Lying is a sin. That's not what he's talking about. The deceitfulness of sin is this. That when we sin, no matter what kind of sin it is, whether we, we refuse to do something we should do or we do something we know we shouldn't do, whatever it is, when we sin, you know what happens? The first thing that happens is we don't think it's that bad. Have you noticed that? I don't know if any of you students experience this, and some of your parents are here, so you don't have to admit this. So I'm, there's, there's freedom here. Don't worry. <laughs> but uh, if any of you experience, you kind of left... You left home, and your parents said, no, don't do this when you go to university, and don't do that. And you're like, okay, and you're kind of, that's that's bad, I don't want to get into that. But then you go to university, and you kind of try this or try that. And you think, it's not that bad. The consequence is it didn't really happen to me. Okay, I know biblically it's bad, but it's not that bad, is it? That's the deceitfulness of sin. Every time we sin, we think it's a little bit less sinful. This is why the author of Hebrews says, we need each other. We need to help each other, exhort each other. See, here's what it means to trust God. It means we receive from God's people. This is more than just coming to church. It's expecting that God's going to speak, not just when this word is spoken, but that God's going to help us through one another. This is why we have the 20-minute break, people. It's not just because we want good coffee. Okay, that's part of the reason. I want good coffee. But still, that's not the only reason. We have the break. Why? So we can receive from one another. So we can exhort one another because we are so naturally prone to sin. And we need to make, keep short accounts with God and confess and pray for one another and encourage one another to keep trusting Jesus. We need that. That's what it means to trust God. To trust God means to use all His resources. And the biggest, most accessible resource that God has given to His people is His people. We are vessels of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells within every believer who's been born again. God's Spirit dwells in everyone who, who, who really believes. God's Spirit dwells in us, and He wants to work through us to help one another. That's what it means to trust God. We need to exhort one another because, guys, listen, it's easy for us to stop believing. Have you ever come to church feeling like, I'm not even sure if I believe this stuff, but you never would want to admit that, would you? Because these are church people, and they get really kind of Look at you weird if you say you don't believe. But that's exactly what you need to do. You need to come to church and go, I'm not sure about any of this stuff. Would you pray for me? I'm really struggling with this thing, or I'm really, I did this thing, and I don't know if it's that that bad. Can you guys pray for me? That's what we need to do with each other. To trust God means we receive from God's people. We'll talk more about that in Hebrews chapter 10. Lastly, look at verse 14 and 15, just about done. The author writes, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our conscience steadfast to the end. While well, it is said, then he goes and he quotes the second part of verse 7 of chapter of Psalm 95. He we're partakers if we do this. Listen. Interesting. That what the author seems to be saying here is what we mentioned earlier is that the, the, the way we're assured that we have been born again. And if you don't know what that means, please talk to us afterwards. We want to explain in detail what we mean by being born again. Jesus talked about it. We want to make sure you understand it. But he's saying, here's how you have assurance that you belong to God. Here's how you have assurance that you really are connected with God. 
you just keep going. You know what's made mine and Sarah's marriage so good for 25 years? We're still married. Seriously. It's the commitment. She drives me nuts. I drive her nuts. We don't always agree on stuff. We don't always do what we're supposed to do. I don't love her as Christ loves the church. Always she doesn't submit to me as the church submits to Christ. We get things wrong all the time. But you know what we don't do? Quit. We are committed. God is committed to us. He says, here's how you know that you belong to me. You stick with me. Don't let go. The, the term is the perseverance of the saints, the idea that everyone who's been born again will, will as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, God will finish the work they started in them. Fully believe that. How do you know you belong to him? You don't give up. You want to. You tell others you want to. You get prayer when you want to, but you don't. You keep going. You don't give up. This is what it means to trust God. You continue with him to the end. How many of you guys have read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody read that? A few of you. It's a great little book. If you get a chance to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I really encourage you to read it. Because what you read is you read about normal people who become Christians and then had to die for their faith. And some of them exercise a faith that's amazing when they're basically being killed. Some of them actually gave up and then felt so bad about it, they came back and said, no, go ahead and burn me at the stake because I can't give up on Jesus. It's inspiring. Folks, listen. We do not want you to come here to Servants Church so you can do your religious duty. If you come and decide, I'm going to follow Servants Church, but you don't follow the servant, that's why we're called Servants Church. I don't know if you guys realize that. Jesus came as a servant, and this is his church. So if you come to Servants Church just so you can be a part of Servants Church and you like the social interaction and you want to be involved in something and you, know, you do believe in God, if that's where you're at, listen, you need to know, just as the Hebrew Christians need to know, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Servants Church. It's him that you need to follow. It's him that's worthy of your faith. It's him that we're calling you to believe. 